I am always delighted when I have a guest for whom I need to do nothing more than name the shows they've worked on. And so, Godspell, Pippin, The Magic Show, The Baker's Wife, Working, Rags, Children of Eden, and a little something called Wicked. He is also the composer of the very first show I ever saw on Broadway. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I am particularly delighted to spend an hour with Stephen Schwartz. Thank you, Howard. Very good to be here. Stephen, I want to start with what's been your newest project. Um, it is not one which you wrote, but um, The Blue Flower, which you produced up at ART. And I wanted to ask you about taking on the role of producer for someone else's work. Well, it certainly wasn't something I intended to do or had ambitions to do or intend ever to do again. Um, this was just a piece that I had known about for some time. It came through my ASCAP workshop, and I'd been following its fortunes since then for about seven years. And finally, about a year and a half ago, I saw a showcase presentation that they did um, up on 86th Street. And I just think the show is so amazing and so unusual and I knew that it was unlikely to get a wider audience if somebody didn't become its champion. So um, I just stepped in and asked if I could help and wound up uh, giving Diane Paulus at ART a call and telling her I thought there was a show she might be interested in and, you know, help to get it on there. So, um, yeah, I'm I'm really pleased that it, it got on and was so well received and um, audiences seem to respond so strongly to it. And I think, um, you know, there's there may be a future for it. So that's a good thing. But what I don't think there's a future for particularly is me as a theatrical producer. Why do you say that? Well, it's just – it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it's it's not really what I wanted to do in terms of – um, the kind of wrangling that's involved, obviously, the financial aspects of it. Um, I'm I'm really much happier being a writer in, in my little room and walking around talking to myself and pretending that I'm other people. Hmm. Well, since you bring it up, I want to ask you about your role, let's not say as a teacher, but as a guide. You've mentioned the ASCAP workshop, and you've been associated with that now for how long? I think about 15 years. It's a project in which writers are invited uh, or selected to do workshop work, and you are the chief mentor. And can you explain exactly? Yeah, that's what you correct. Um, basically, uh, writers submit a musical in progress on which they are working. Uh, we usually get upwards of a hundred to two hundred submissions, of which we select four. We do it in New York and Los Angeles, and it's a pretty simple format. The writers present a consecutive half hour of their work because I've found if people kind of do the greatest hits version, it doesn't really serve anybody very well. But with a consecutive half hour, you can really start to see what structural problems there are if they exist. Anyway, they present this half hour, and myself and other writers or theater directors basically give some criticism and some advice, and then they have a couple of weeks to do some reworking if they like, and then they do another presentation that's about 50 consecutive minutes, and then there's another critique, which features myself and two or three other panelists, and then we send them off 
into the world with their project or whatever they've learned from this. And it also is attended by a couple hundred people. And I often feel that it's maybe more useful for the people who attend than the people who participate because there's so much less pressure just listening and, you know, objectively. <laughs> well, when you say people, are you talking about other writers, composers? Are you talking about the public? Are you talking about industry people? It tends to be aspiring writers, actors to some extent, people interested in musical theater. But I think the preponderance of the attendees are aspiring musical theater writers. Well, the one time I had a chance to attend it, it is the most interesting thing in a way is how you and the other mentors there that evening dissect it for not in in a bad way, but really looked at every aspect of the work that had just been presented. And so, frankly, even to a non-writer, non-composer, it was really interesting to hear the thoughts of experts about, you know, what they'd just heard. Well, sort of the, the ground rule is that what we try to do is to ascertain what the writers who are presenting are trying to achieve and then discuss where we think they're being successful at achieving that and where they might um, consider doing something, some other things or improving it, et cetera. The idea is not to say this is a bad idea or if I were writing your show, I would do it like this, but rather it seems to me this is what you're trying to do. And if that's the case, then here's where I think you still have a ways to go. It's obvious to me what value it would be for those who are selected to the program and, as I said, even to those who observe. But as somebody who said you most like spending time in a room with your characters in your own show, I'm wondering, is there something that you learn out of the process even after 15 years? Oh, completely, yes. I mean, first of all, just hearing what my fellow panelists say is often revelatory to me. And very helpful. I actually think, you know, people think it's very altruistic of me to do this, but I actually think it's quite selfish and that I'm the one who's benefiting the most. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's it's uh, Oscar Hammerstein who said in King and I, when you become a teacher by your pupils, you'll be taught. And uh, I think that has proven very true for me. Um, and it's it's been very useful for me in terms of craft. I, I think that a lot of the craft brought to bear, for instance, in Wicked, um, is an outgrowth of things I sort of gleaned um, criticizing other people's hmm. work. In the ASCAP workshop, for one thing, it makes me much tougher on myself. You know, uh, um, If I do something and then I sort of look at it, you know, a lot of times I'll say, well, I wouldn't let somebody else get away with that in the workshop, so I certainly can't let myself get away with it. Can you be that self-critical or do you in the process of your own work ever choose to bring people in to hear where you are in progress? Oh, always. Yes. Um, I, I'm a big believer in sort of the um, development process with musicals where um, you sort of write a certain portion of the show, an act or at a certain point the whole show up to the point where you feel like, well, this is as far as I can go without – getting some kind of objective response to it and then do a reading and invite some folks to the reading. A lot of times simply being in a room with other people watching and listening to what you've done is um, eye-opening. You almost don't need them to say anything because you're suddenly looking through much colder, more objective eyes at your own work. And in fact, somebody else 
is playing it and singing at that. And you've, you've been at the piano by yourself working it out up to that point. Oh, yes. It's, it, I, one of the things I've learned is if you're doing a reading, you really do not want to be playing it or singing it because then, you're, then you have the role of the performer. Hmm. And really what you're focusing on is trying to make it work um, as opposed to sitting back and being objective about it. Um, I have found doing backers auditions in the old days when there were such things that I'd find if I was playing a song and I was really working hard to make it come off, there was something wrong with the song. It shouldn't be that hard. But um, it's much less easy to be objective under those circumstances. Hmm. Well, let's go from being the teacher or the mentor to being the student. You clearly were quite a prodigy. Um, You attended classes at Juilliard when you were still in high school? Well, there's a preparatory division wow. at Juilliard. I'm not the only one who okay. did that. In fact, I think more of in Hamlet. But still, told. achieving yeah. that is is quite an achievement. Yeah, well, thank you. Did you attend Juilliard already with an interest in musical theater, or was it simply composition and piano that interested you? No, I absolutely had a mus- uh, an interest in musical theater basically um, from the time I was about seven. Hmm. Um, my parents were friendly with a composer whose name was George Kleinsinger, um, who had written a couple of successful of what we would now call concept albums, one of which was uh, called Archie and Mahidabel, which featured uh, Carol Channing and Eddie Bracken. And it was based on stories written for The New Yorker by Don Marquis about a cockroach who was in love with an alley cat. And at a certain point, this was adapted as a Broadway show right about the point where my parents met George and became friendly with him. And so we used to go over to his house and he would play uh, what he was working on for the show. And then I would, I think I was about, as I say, six or seven, and I would go over to the piano and try and, you know, pick out the, one of the tunes that I'd heard to the point where George um, basically said to my parents, look, I think Stephen has some musical ability. You might want to think about getting him piano lessons. And then when the show finally did play briefly, as it did on Broadway, um, my parents took me to see it, and I was sort of bitten by the bug, pardon the pun. Uh, (laughs) And from that point on, my aspiration was to write for musical theater. So you took these classes at Juilliard while in high school. You ended up going to Carnegie Mellon. Right. Did they have a specifically musical theater program at that time, or was it a general drama program? No, to the contrary. It was absolutely strict classical drama. Um, I went to Carnegie Mellon because it was one of the best undergraduate uh, drama schools in the country. And by that point, I'd taken piano for a long time, including the four years at Juilliard. Um, But I knew I wanted to write for the theater. And other than going to the theater, um, because I grew up proximate to New York City on Long Island, um, I really didn't know very much about it. And I Mm -hmm. thought it would be good to um, learn something (laughs) about drama and theater. But at that time, the Carnegie Mellon now has an excellent musical theater program, partly, I think, due to me and my Godspell compatriots, uh, who also came out of Carnegie. Um, At that point, it was strictly classical theater. In fact, I was a directing major at Carnegie. And for my senior project, I did the first act of The Apple Tree by uh, Bach and Harnick. And the only reason they allowed me to do it was because I was able to accompany it myself because there was nobody who could, you know, they said, well, who's going to play the piano for this? And I said, well, I will. And they said, well, okay, in that case, you can do it. Hmm. But as you just alluded to, in the midst of all of this, you wrote Godspell 
or at least no, it was Pippin that you wrote the early version of exactly. while you were in school. Yeah, there was an extracurricular organization, a club. Um, at Carnegie at that point called Scotch and Soda. I think it still exists, but it no longer does what it did then, which was that every year it did an original musical, which was written, produced, performed, directed, designed, etc., by students. But a lot of students, we hear about these at a lot of schools, and in most cases, what they are are sort of reviews. You think of, you know, the Triangle Club or Mask and Wig or, you know, the the, the various shows. Was the tradition there actual book musicals? Well, it was when I did it. <laughs> well, I understand, but but had it been before? I don't know. Uh, my impression is not really, but yeah. when I came in, um, they were, as a freshman, they had already, of course, selected their show for the year, which was to be written or co-written by a girl then, now a woman, who at that time was named Iris Ratner, but now is better known as Iris Rayner Dart who wrote Beaches, et cetera, and used to write for the Carol Burnett Show and so on. And Iris was doing basically a spoofy, actually Carol Burnett-y type of show called What's Her Face about a cleaning lady who becomes a supermodel. But it definitely was a book show. Hmm. And I signed on and wound up writing uh, most of the music and some of the lyrics, et cetera. And then, you know, from that point on, did the show the four years I was there. So Pippin, when you were in school... How far along was it? I mean, how what, was it pretty fully formed when you left school? Or well, was, was there fully, a lot yet to be done? It was fully formed as a show, but the show that was fully formed had absolutely nothing to do with the show that opened on Broadway some six years later. Uh-huh. Um, at school, I co-wrote the show with a friend of mine named Ron Strauss, and it was based on a paragraph that Ron had found in a history textbook about the son of Charlemagne and his plot to overthrow his father. And at the time, we were all quite enamored of James Goldman's The Lion in Winter. And, you know, you can imagine drama students, we were all going around quoting the bitchy dialogue. Of course he has a knife. We all have knives. Right, exactly. (laughs) You know, what family doesn't have its ups and downs? I can still quote line after line from that (laughs) show. And it's great dialogue. But we thought it would be fun to do a musical that was kind of like Lion in Winter with a lot of court intrigue and plotting and, you know, backstabbing, etc. And so that's what the original Pippin Pippin was. And then as... Uh, When I came to New York and some people expressed some interest in the show and wanted to help me develop it, as it sort of developed and transmogrified, gradually it shed most of those trappings and became more of a, I suppose, very loosely semi-autobiographical story of a young man kind of in search of what he wanted to do with his life. And did any of the songs from the college version remain? When it, not a note. Do you remember lyric, any of the notes note? that that didn't uh, make it on? Uh, um, there was a there was a song. Oh gosh, I don't know that I could still play it. There was a really bitchy song between the character of Bertha and the character of Fastrada called "Begging My Lady's Pardon." Um, God, I wonder if I can remember it. It was like. Uh, like that kind of a little note. It's like, begging my lady's pardon, hoping I don't seem rude. You know, one of those kind of, um, you know, everybody being excessively polite to one another and saying very, very nasty things. <laughs> well, we're already talking about Pippin on Broadway, and there's some more of the story before we get there. So you graduated from Carnegie Mellon straight to New York? 
Yeah, basically, I came straight to New York. I did some, you know, non-equity summer stock where I was um, started out as uh, assistant musical director and wound up being both, you know, musical director and I directed a couple of things and actually did a lot of musical staging, some of which found its way into Godspell. Um, and I had done that for three summers while I was at Carnegie. But once I graduated, I basically came straight to New York and started, you know, hawking my wares and trying to make it in the theater. Well. In terms of Broadway, your wares first got picked up. You wrote a title song for Butterflies Are Free, the play. Yes, exactly. I didn't know that plays had title songs. Well, in this case, it was Butterflies Are Free is about um, a blind folk singer. Um, and at one point in the show, he sings a song that he has right. written. And um, I had by that point acquired an agent, Shirley Bernstein, who represented Cure Delay who was starring, starring in the show. The show yeah. And so she s- told me about the show and sent me the script and said, would you like to submit a song on spec for them? And, um, you know, they're looking for, for a song that this character uh, Don has written. So I wrote the song and because it was for a uh, blind character, I tried to make sure that none of the um, images were, in fact, vis- visual images, hmm. that it was all about touch and feel and, you know, other other than visual uh, metaphors. And maybe that was one of the reasons that they selected. I also tried to keep it really simple so it sounded like an amateur writing a folk song. And, of course, being 21 years old, it wasn't hard for me to sound like an amateur. Did you write it for the guitar? Did you write it on piano and then it had to be changed? I wrote it on piano, but I played guitar. So I knew uh, I knew guitar, and it's very simple chords. Can you play a little of that? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So it went, I knew the day you met me I could love you if you let me Though you touched my cheek and said How easy you'd forget me You said Butterflies are free And so are we Very folk songy, very sort of of the period, you know, because that was 1969. Hmm. So how did, I mean, 1971 was quite a year because it seems that's when Godspell really began to hit. How did you come to Godspell? Well, um, my agent, Shirley, had taken me uh, to audition uh, Pippin because that was the show we were trying to sell for a number of producers, among whom were Edgar Lansbury and Joe Beru. And um, they weren't particularly interested in Pippin, so they just passed on it. But about nine months or so after I had played some of the songs from Pippin for them, I got a call from them out of the blue, and they had seen a show which was playing at Ellen Stewart's, who's just passed away, mm-hmm. down at Cafe La Mama, um, called Godspell. Uh, it might have been called The Godspell at that point. But anyway, it was this off-off-Broadway theater, and they were interested in transferring it for a commercial run off-Broadway, but they felt it needed a score because it didn't really have a so score. So it was just a play. It had a couple of songs in it which were written by cast members, one of which by my side we retained for the final show because it was such a good song. But they wanted a real score. 
Edgar has sworn to me that I was the first person they called, but of course I don't believe him. I assume what they did, because they weren't stupid guys, was that they called every known composer in New York and were turned down by everybody. And finally, the night before it was ending its run at Cafe La Mama, in desperation, one of them said, well, what about that kid with that strange show about the son of Charlemagne? I mean, maybe we should call him. And that's what happened. You know, they called me. I remember very well because it actually was on my birthday hmm. that they called me. I had just turned 23 and I was at my folks' house and got the call. And the next night I went to the last performance of The Godspell down at Cafe La Mama and signed on. And they said, great, we go into rehearsal on April 11th, which was about five weeks from then. And we open in May. Go. Did you say yes because it was a gig or did you say yes because you saw this thing and really fell in love with it? Honestly, I said yes because it was a gig. I would have done pretty much anything um, you know, to get the opportunity to write songs for a show that was going to get produced. Um, I did really like the show when I saw it and it had the advantage of having a lot of people that I knew from Carnegie. Um, you know, a couple of people I had known at school, including the director, John Michael Teblak, who created the show. I'd known him a little bit at school. So I knew they were peers of mine and people that I was going to get along with, which I did. It was a really pleasant working experience. But the truth is that I would have taken pretty much any gig, to be honest. So the timetable you just described was that you had five weeks, really, before it went into rehearsal. That's correct. To put yeah. the whole show together. So – Having no idea of your process, do you usually write quickly? I mean, has that no. always been your case? No, that was just insane. <laughs> and, um, you know, now I would have just laughed and left the room um, because it was an impossible thing to do. But, um, of course, I was 23. I was very ambitious. And I had some advantages, one of which was the show existed. I basically saw the show. And it didn't change all that much from Cafe La Mama to the Cherry Lane Theater. I mean, it had songs now and musical staging. And it was neatened up a little bit. And some of the um, sections that had been dialogue or monologue had been turned into songs. But basically, the show didn't change. Um, I'd seen the cast. I mean, we replaced a couple of cast members to get better singers, but I really had an idea of, uh, you know, for whom I was writing. And also, I didn't have to write a lot of lyrics because most of the lyrics come from the Episcopal hymnal. Um, uh -huh. And most of the lyrics that I did write, I think out of the 13 songs, um, eight of them are from the Episcopal hymnal, the lyrics. And the five that I did write were more or less from the Bible. They were, you know, paraphrases of the Bible or other things that I was adapting rather than creating whole cloth. There, are, There's really only one or two songs in the show that are basically music and lyrics completely invented. Which are those? Well, all for the best. Mm -hmm. um, because I felt that... Um, you know, the show was to some extent preaching to the converted when I saw it. And I said, look, if this were um, a, a show about, you know, Steve and Jack and people you'd never heard of instead of Jesus and Judas, you would have a song where you established what their relationship was so that it could later um, fall apart or the betrayal would mean so much more. So I thought we should do a kind of song and dance Irving Berlin type number for Jesus and Judas and that's where All for the Best came from. 
But yeah, other than that, most of the songs, including Day by Day, those lyrics are were written in 1197 by, I think, you know, St. Richard of Chichester or something like that. But clearly uh, out of copyright, so (laughs) in public domain, so you didn't have any. Oh, yeah, no, all of the all of it was in public domain. Um, And of course, I, I had no idea what the music was. That was uh, in in the hymnal. Um, you know, I just took the lyrics and put them in front of me and basically wrote tunes to so them. So, what was the first one that you actually said, "Okay, this this is," and, and decided even on the musical tone for what the show would be? Gosh, I don't I don't even remember what the the first song that I did for it was. Um, it, it could have been Save the People because that was the the first song there. I could have start. I might have started with Day by Day hmm. um, because it was so simple and because I was trying to come up with something. Uh, one of the ideas that John Michael and I had was that because the song was only six lines long in terms of lyrics and was repeated over and over again, that we wanted something by the end of which the audience could sing along with. Hmm. But it was that catchy and that simple. The tune you can hum. I think think the simplicity of it is why it... Um, you know, became a hit. But I do remember that when uh, the show first opened and that song was getting some attention, the publisher, uh, Tommy Volando, the, um, who was publishing the music, said to me, well, you have to write some more lyrics because there are only six lines in this. And so it, it can't be a hit song with just these same things repeated over and over again. And I just said, well, I'm sorry, but that's it. You know, that's the song. So I guess it won't be a hit, but it, it worked out. When Godspell was made into a film, you're you're on record as having said you don't think it was an entirely successful film adaptation. That's correct. Yeah. Um, was that process a happy one for you, or or did you feel even during it that that they might not be capturing it? Well, I, I, I wasn't around that much for one hmm. thing because it was right when Pippin was in rehearsals and then out of town. Uh, so I didn't get to be around for a lot of it. Um, I was around for the for all for the best because I sort of had um, some ideas about you know putting the guys in front of the Accutron sign, which doesn't exist anymore, and being on top of the World Trade Center and those sort of things you can only do in the movies. Um, the World Trade Center at that point still being under construction. You know, so there, it was a lot of fun. Really, what happened, I think, more than anything, was um, because it was not a very high budget. They didn't have enough footage to really edit it together. Um, I, I thought it needed to be like A Hard Day's Night, the Richard Lester film, kind of anarchic and hmm. wild and young and streety. Um, and, and they really didn't have enough to, to make it like that. Uh, and, and also I think that the director, who's a very talented British director named David Green, who is best known for doing kind of um, intense family dramas um, very, very well, may I say, but I don't think he really got it. And I think he superimposed a sort of like Jesus Christ Superstar passion play idea on it. And that's just, you know, and sort of saw the kids as kind of cute flower children and just, just well, kind of missed the tone. it has a little feeling of even hair about it. Yeah. 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 I think he missed the tone of it a little bit. Hair, on the other hand, I think became a very successful movie. The Milos Forman movie, I think, is one of the best of the musical movie adaptations. Interesting. I said 1971 was quite a year. Now, Godspell, as you said, started at Cherry Lane. It went uptown to the Promenade where it played for a long time. It ultimately came to Broadway, and that was over a period of years. But also in 1971, you were doing 
English lyrics for Leonard Bernstein's Mass. Right. I mean, to be collaborating with Leonard Bernstein at that point, again, you're still a very young man. You're maybe 25 now. No, no, um, I'm still 23. You're still 23? It's all that one oh year. Oh, my God. I know. So I can't even believe what got done in that so year. So how did, how did you and Leonard Bernstein end up together? Well, um, you may remember that I mentioned my agent's name, Shirley Bernstein, and you may have noticed the similarity in last name. Um, that's because she was Leonard Bernstein's sister. Oh, well, that helps. And it helped, yes. <laughs> and she knew that um, Lenny had been working on a commission to open the Kennedy Center, and um, he was writing this mass – uh, and he had the idea that it wouldn't just be a Latin mass, but that people who were hearing the mass, participants in the mass, would sort of respond to it in English. And he had been working on it for some time, and it was now May of 1971, shortly after Godspell opened. And the Kennedy Center was selling tickets for September 8th, 1971, which was when this piece was to open. and he <laughs> sensing, sensing a recurring se- theme yeah. in how you're getting gigs now. Exactly. Well, unfortunately, that ended right after this. But um, he was kind of nowhere. He had a lot of shards and bits and pieces, but didn't really have an overall concept, and very little of the English texts had been written. He'd done some himself, but very little existed, and he was starting to panic. Hmm. Um, and he'd been through a lot of his customary collaborators who for one reason or another weren't going to do it and some other tries at collaborators including Paul Simon who wrote four wonderful lines for it. I still think they're the best lyrics in the, in, in the mass um, that Paul Simon wrote but ultimately that collaboration didn't work out. And finally, um, he was getting pretty desperate and Shirley said, well, I have this new client, this kid, and he wrote this show called Godspell and why don't you come see it and um, see how you feel about it and then the two of you will talk. And so that's how, that's how that came about. At 23, under time pressure, how much were you able to assert what you thought was right and how much were you writing to what? who I can only call Mr. Bernstein, wanted. Well, I think the thing that I really contributed to Mass, much more than the lyrics themselves, which I think um, are pretty first drafty and, and show a lack of uh, craft that I developed hopefully later in my life. But what I was able to contribute to Mass was the structure, was hmm. the overall the story such as there is about this young guy who becomes gradually weighted down by the um, the, the trappings of his office and the um, difficulties that he encounters from his congregation, this young celebrant, and just the whole trajectory of the piece. And it's if you look at it, it, it doesn't have um, it's it's not dissimilar in a way to, to Godspell hmm. structurally in some ways. Um, and that, I think, really helped because that's how the the piece got on. Um, the lyrics themselves, uh, some of them I feel okay about and some of them I wish I'd done better. You know, I was not only doing them quickly, but it was very, um, you know, it was kind of first draft. You, there was no time to go back and rewrite. Um, Lenny was pretty, pretty much, I mean, he had obviously suggestions and um, uh, things that he wanted to say and ideas for what he thought songs should be. But um, he was not at all oppressive. To the contrary, you know, he was very generous. Um, recently, I have actually rewritten um, 
a lot of the lyrics because uh, a few years ago I was at a, a symposium being held in Columbus, Ohio, where they were performing mass and they brought a bunch of people together to talk about it. And I was sitting on this panel and talking about it and I realized, oh, wait, I'm not dead. I could actually rewrite these lyrics and make them better. And so I contacted Jamie Bernstein, uh, Lenny's daughter, and together we kind of went through it and hmm. did some revisions. Um, and I, I, the, the rule for myself was that I could not change a single note. And if there was a 16th note that I knew had been added originally to accommodate a lyric, nevertheless, that 16th note had to stay. Hmm. And, and I do feel that the revised lyrics, which many people use um, now when they perform the piece, are, are superior. So the one-two punch of Godspell and Mass suddenly did a lot of people think, wait a minute. This is by that kid who was schlepping around trying to sell us that musical about Charlemagne's son. Was was that how Pippin got on? Um, well, actually, before Godspell had happened, Stuart Ostro, w- one of the producers for whom um, I auditioned the show, had actually optioned it. Uh-huh. So it was already – hence, the, that's the reason that Pippin then, a year later – opened on Broadway in 1972. I mean, that was a year and a half after Godspell opened. So clearly, it was in progress by the time uh, Godspell happened. Now, in the case of Pippin, you've talked about virtually nothing remains from what you'd originally written in college. You were you were working with Bob Fosse, a right. director who had very strong ideas about all of his shows. So how much did he help you in terms of reshaping what what the show would become? Well, Bob was enormously influential on the show. Um, you know, kind of famously, he and I had a lot of – there was a lot of friction between us. Um, and in many ways, it was an extremely difficult collaboration. Um, Bob was not great at communicating with authors – um, it just wasn't the language he spoke, and he was pretty impatient with writers. I mean, there are famous stories about uh, uh, Carolyn Lee running out of rehearsals from Little Me and trying to get uh, a, a policeman to arrest Bob Fosse for violating the Dramatist Guild contract. <laughs> and another uh, writer um, who's uh, – you'll see that I won't mention his name, but who worked with Bob quite a bit, referred to – uh, referred about him to me at one point as the Antichrist. Hmm. Um, I didn't have that feeling about Bob, but I did find it difficult to work with him. Um, but I will say that the sort of dark vision that he brought to Pippin, I think, has a lot to do with why it succeeded then, why it continues to be successful. And what I find very ironic is that now, um, when I'm older than Bob was when he did Pippin, I see the show much more through his eyes hmm. than through the eyes of the 24-year-old I was when, when the show opened. Of course, um, you know, Roger Herson, my collaborator, who worked very closely with Bob uh, when he was uh, doing the book, you know, also has a lot to do with the, the content and quality of the show. But anyway, I now feel that in a way I've become the guardian of Bob's vision and um, things that we, we cut from the show at one point, I've put back in and, you know, kind of even pushed further. And, um, you know, I, I, but if I, you're the guardian of the vision, why would you put back in cut material? 
Well, because what happened was after the show opened when it was going to Stock and Amateur and other performances, um, we actually cut some of the stuff that had gone in because um, Bob had wanted it there, certain interruptions from the leading player and certain um, kind of uh, um, things that we felt were undercutting the character of Pippin and undercutting the story. And then subsequently, uh, you know, all these years later, I've come to appreciate them in a different way and put a lot of them back in with obviously with Roger's collaboration. So what would be one of those songs that wasn't in the original production and presumably not on the cast album? Well, it's not really a song. They're, mm-hmm. they're, it's basically lines oh. and, and um, sort of things that, uh, um, you know, that the, for instance, the, the Catherine scene, um, which is the scene where Pippin goes to the country and meets this widow uh, with whom he ultimately winds up, um, was interrupted a great deal by the leading player, and we cut uh-huh. a lot of those interruptions. Um, and but now they're back in, I and see. and 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 more so. Um, and um, but but anyway, I've, I I sort of you know say with with some self amusement that I feel that somewhere as when when I'm dealing with Pippin, that somewhere Bob is looking up and laughing. That's hmm. my. My little joke about that, and then then we we found an ending. I found an ending for Pippin. We we the, one of the biggest fights we had was about the very ending of the show, mm-hmm. and it was over two words. And the the show originally ended with um, Catherine asking Pippin when he's been stripped of everything, and they're just standing on a bare stage, and she asks him how he feels, and he says trapped. But happy, which isn't too bad for the end of a musical comedy. And Bob cut the words, but happy. So it was just trapped, which isn't too bad. And there was a huge fight, even an arbitration about this with the Dramatist Guild. Hmm. We got the right to put back in the words, but happy. Many, many years later, I was in London seeing a fringe production of Pippin, um, you know, the equivalent of Off Off Broadway. And they did a completely different ending. Which had nothing, which didn't use any of this. And I saw this new ending and I thought, oh, but that's the ending of the show. If we'd only thought of it, that's what we should have done. So now that's the ending of Pippin. Well, only, I'd love to talk more about Pippin, but I need to keep moving. I did mention that you wrote the first Broadway show I ever saw, which was The Magic Show. The Magic Show, Um, Was That was a vehicle for Doug Henning, certainly in the way people spoke of it at the time. Was that how it was conceived from the get-go? Absolutely, yes. What happened was that Edgar and Joe, who had produced Godspell, were up in Toronto producing a tour of Gypsy with Edgar's sister, Angela Lansbury. And they happened to see Doug Henning um, do this magic act. And they were very intrigued by him and thought that he had star quality and... Um, that would be interesting to do a musical with a lot of magic in it. And they phoned me because they knew I liked magic. And they said, would you come up and see this kid and see what you think? And I flew up and, um, yeah, we decided that we would build a show around him. Um, But, of course, Doug didn't sing. So the idea was that his illusions would be his numbers and that the illusions that he was going to do would be incorporated into the story and they would advance the plot hmm. the way traditional musical numbers advance the plot. So if he was having a fight with the, his female assistant and she was annoying him, he would make her disappear. 
and he made her disappear within a number called Two's Company. So and so on. So hmm. most of the illusions figured into the storytelling, and Doug never sang, and everybody else around him, the other nine. Uh, actors sang. But that must be an interesting challenge to put together a show with a non-singing lead. As you say, he had a particular gift that that you could use, but you said you were writing the songs around him. Yeah, no, it was it was a challenge, but it was fun, you mm-hmm. know, and I I've always liked magic a lot, so it was, you know, fun to be involved with it. Though what happened was Doug made us all sign pledges that we would never reveal how any of the illusions were done. And my belief is that to this day, whatever it is, 30-some-odd years later, all of us have honored that. But what I found was that when I started to find out how they were done, I was very disappointed. So I just decided I didn't want to know. So hmm. most of them I, I just don't know because when to they were day. revealing how they were done, I would leave the room because it was – you know, you would just say like, oh, that's all it is? People often talk about musicals that are vehicles for particular stars. And we hear of shows that were written for Mary Martin and Ethel Merman. In the case of writing a show for Doug Henning, unfortunately, it's a show that's created that is not easily done. We don't see lots of high school productions of the magic show. No, that's one of the few shows in my catalog or oeuvre or whatever you want to call it that just um, really, you know, existed at one time and have gone away. There have been... Um, periodic attempts from people who are magicians to um, who want to revive it. But I feel that the show itself has dated a great deal and it was thrown together pretty quickly and, you know, would really need to be improved. Hmm. And so it, it seemed like that was more work than it was probably worth. Is there a song from the show that you're still particularly Oh, yeah. There are a few songs from the show that um, have been done a lot. A lot of people's favorites of my – one of their favorites of my songs is a song called Lion Tamer from that show. It was Leonard Bernstein's favorite of my songs. Um, I think he liked it because it's it's in 7-4. I think he just liked the, the rhythm. And this was sung by the girl who was secretly in love with Doug. And it went, I'd like to be a lion tamer, sequins and tights and silk top hats. I know I could be a lion tamer. I've always gotten along with cats. I'd have, whoops, I don't even remember. I'd have a whip but never use it. I'd simply hold it in my hand. Please let me be a lion tamer. If I could be a lion tamer, I would be someone grand. And so on. Moving on to working, a show which you really conceived, directed, wrote some of the songs. What was the impulse that made you think that Stud Turkle's recollections or chronicles of working people's stories could actually make a musical? Well, I've always liked nonfiction <laughs> musicals. Hmm. I remember seeing uh, a show called The Me Nobody Knows off Broadway and uh, liking it enormously and being very moved by it. Um, and I came across uh, an announcement of the book working right when it was about to be published and there were little excerpts from it and one of the excerpts was from a telephone operator in the days when there was such a thing and um, she said at one point 
You know, every so often you get someone on the line and they say, what's your day been like, operator? Has it been a tough day? And she said, you're so thankful for those people. And something about that touched me so much, I realized that I never thought of the operator that I was speaking to and sometimes complaining to about Bell Telephone and being a monopoly and why couldn't I get this and that. I never really thought of her as a person. I just thought of her as a function. And I didn't really recognize the way that we were connected when we spoke. And I felt that about, then I read the book, and I felt that about so many of the characters. It just felt like I wanted to put these people that we never look at and never hear from on stage and look at them and hear from them and explore the hidden connections among them and among us. And so um, I called Studs. And he thought I was crazy. And so I flew out to Chicago and sort of explained what I had in mind. And he became a very enthusiastic participant in the creation of the show, which I'm happy to say is right now, even as we speak, in rehearsals in Chicago, a revival um, and an updated version of it with some new songs, a couple new songs by Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote In the Heights, and some updated monologues and etc. It's in rehearsal right now, and it opens in Chicago on February 15th. Having seen working a few years ago now at Long Wharf and having heard about other productions, it seems that people want to tweak it a little bit. And each time it's done, it's a slightly different version. Um, How much of that do you allow? How much of that do you participate in? Well, I basically participate in it. Um, you know, you can't really do working and and somewhere and just like change it if you right. you know you at least have to ask permission. Sometimes I participate as I did with the Long Wharf production, as I am with the Chicago production. Um, sometimes people just ask me. For instance, there was a very interesting production done at NYU a couple of years ago that I went to see, and they'd interpolated some other characters and other uh, some some from the book and some interviews they'd done, and they asked my permission, and I said sure, and I went down to see it, and some of it was really interesting what they'd done, and certainly the fact that it. There were a variety of writers on the original allows for the interpolation of new material perhaps more than most other shows would. Yeah, because it's basically a topical review, though. It's actually put together rather – it was tricky to put it together. The show did not initially succeed on Broadway, and I think part of that was because it wasn't quite put together right. There were some pieces that were in it that shouldn't have been in it, and some things were in the wrong order. And, you know, subsequent to the Broadway production, when I went back and revised it and moved some things around and cut some things, it, it more or less started to work right away. So it's, it's deceptive. It's, it's tricky. And I have to ask, it was an enormously generous and interesting creative idea for you as a composer lyricist to go to other composer lyricists and say, contribute to my musical. Well, the point is that it's nonfiction and that the uh, characters are not really characters, they're people. And they're saying what they actually said. And the songs, the idea with the songs is to try to stay as close as possible to what they actually said and certainly to who they are as people. And I began to feel, as I was exploring writing the score, that I was going to wind up writing a lot of pastiche and imitating other styles in order to try and um, you know, become as close as I could to these characters. And I, I thought, well, maybe I should go to some writers who have a more direct connection with 
um, certain characters and ask them to participate. For instance, Mickey Grant, the wonderful African-American songwriter who had done Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. Um, I went to her about writing for some of the African-American characters. Um, but it wasn't really ethnic casting because like Craig Carnelia, who is, you know, a sort of middle-class white guy like myself, but just had a different point of view and a different way of writing people, wound up writing four of the songs. And uh, it, be, it became James Taylor, yeah. you know, the the pop writer who, um, um, when I went to him, one of the characters he immediately wanted to uh, write a song for was the mill worker. And I had no idea that that character would have a song. Mm. I, you know, I found her um, interview very compelling and I knew that she was going to be in the show. But when James said he wanted to write a song about her, I just thought, well, I don't see it, but sure, you know, give it a try. And it's become and, one of his oh, great standards. It's just one of the best songs I've ever heard. And it's, it's my favorite moment in the show <laughs> is that song, Millworker. Mm. When you went to work on Rags, I've. It's been pointed out by more than one person. That was really your first truly big Broadway show that that the others all had an intimacy to them and that they'd come up in different ways. Rags is a show that is much discussed, much beloved. Um, Did it feel differently working on Rags than what had come before? Well, the process with Rags was strange because I originally came into Rags as the director. I wasn't going to be writing it. And um, then subsequently, uh, Charles Strauss, who was writing the score, felt that he was not having um, a successful collaboration with the person who was going to be the lyricist, not because that person wasn't a very talented lyricist, but just the collaboration wasn't working out. And so he asked me to step in as lyricist, and I did. And then ultimately, I began to feel that I was so involved in the writing of the show that I couldn't have the kind of objectivity that I think a director needs to have. So ultimately, I withdrew as the director, um, which may or may not have been a a good thing to do. But anyway, that's what happened. Um, Yeah, so that was a sort of strange process. And it's, it's the show that I still find of mine that I still find the most problematic. I've been fortunate enough um, with shows like Working as we've just discussed and The Baker's Wife, although it took 30 years, and Children of Eden, you know, three shows of mine that weren't successful initially, but after revision and rethinking have gone on to be very successful. But Raz, we still haven't quite solved yet, I feel. Do you continue to work? I mean, you've just mentioned those shows. Certainly, it seems that in the old days of Broadway, a show opened, it was a hit or it was a flop, and that determined what its life would be. Are you committed to continuing to look at some of these shows and trying to make them better? Or at a certain point, do you have to let them go? Well, I do like to look at them and make them better um, when an opportunity presents itself, even shows that are successful. You know, when we did Wicked in London and, you know, the show was obviously a big hit in in America, but there were things that Winnie Holtz and my collaborator and I felt we hadn't gotten quite right. And so we fixed some stuff. 
And to his credit, Joe Montello, the director, restaged stuff. And Wayne Salento, the choreographer, redid some stuff. And, you know, we all just tried to make it better and then went back and um, and put the improvements into the other productions. Well, I mean, Pip and I have already described to you yeah. how, uh, you know, I found a better ending and we, we put a new ending into the show. Of that trilogy you mentioned, Baker's Wife and Rags and Children of Eden, they all get produced. They get done a lot. But after they had opened or had their initial runs, did you actually write new songs for them? Our Children of Eden, I did a lot of new work hmm. between London and the next production. And yeah, Children of Eden became, you know, this big success, but it's a lot different than the initial production in London. That's That I did a lot of new songs and for. And we still, it's been a big success, but we've still not seen it in New York. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's problematic, I think, for New York for two reasons. Yeah. Well, the subject matter, I mm. think, you know, it's, it's um, you know, after all, the, the book of Genesis, and, mm -hmm. and I don't know how uh, commercial that is uh, in New York. Was the gospel according to St. Matthew Yeah, commercial? a different time. It's a very, very different time now. Hmm. Um, and also, it's big, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's it, uh, it's it's conceived as a semi-oratorio. A lot of the uh, storytelling is done by a choir, and so it requires a lot of people. I think it would have been done in New York by now if it were the same size cast as Godspell, and it might have been done in New York with the size cast it is if it was a different subject matter, but I think the combination is tricky. Because I've never had the opportunity to see it. Is there a particular song from that show that you you think represents the spirit of it? Oh, most. There are a lot of songs from that. Yeah. I mean, that's my favorite uh, of my shows. It's my favorite. Can you share a little score. bit of one of them? Um, I'm on, I'm trying to think what uh, which one I should do. Um, there's a song called "The Hardest Part of Love" that this that. Um, because the whole show is about parents and children and dysfunction between generations, etc. And um, let's see if I can. I hope I'm playing it in the right key. No, that's not the right key. There it is. So the ca father character, the character of Noah, sings this. Oh, this son of mine I love so well, and oh, the toll it takes. I would give to him a garden and keep it clear of snakes. But the one thing he most treasures is to make his own mistakes. Oh, he goes charging up the cliffs of life, a reckless mountaineer. I could help him not to stumble I could warn him what to fear I could shout him till I'm breathless And he'd still refuse to hear Oh, but you cannot close the acorn Once the oak begins to grow And you cannot close your heart To what it fears and needs to know That the hardest part of love Is the letting go and so on. The story on Wicked is that you just happened to read the book and said, "I see a musical in this." I didn't even read the book. Yeah, when I when I had that thought, I heard the idea. 
in the most random way. So Pippin started way. with one paragraph out of a history yes, book way yeah. back when, and you just heard the idea of Wicket. In, a, in a, the most random way, I happened to be on a snorkeling trip with some friends and in Hawaii. And one of my friends, the folk singer Holly Near, on the boat on the way back said, oh, I'm reading this really interesting book. It's called Wicked, and it's the Oz story from the Wicked Witch's point of view. And I just thought that is the best idea I've ever heard for a show. And it's so me in so many ways. It's like the perfect idea for me. And so the next day when I got back to the mainland, I called my representative and I said, look, there's this book called Wicked. Somebody has the rights because it's been out for a while. Um, but I really feel this is something for me. Can you find out who has the rights? And it took about a year to track it down to Universal and talk Universal into doing it as a show and not as a movie. They were on their way. to. They were on the second draft of a screenplay for a non-musical version of the movie. Um, and I basically finally succeeded in talking them out of that and, and into doing it as a, as a stage musical. Hmm. When did you find the voice for each of the two characters? What were the songs for Galinda and for Alphaba? Well, Alphaba, I kind of got right away um, because that's the reason I wanted to do the show. I so sort of identified with this character. And I've seen, uh, I came across uh, some time ago, my little early sketches of tunes way before we'd written any dialogue and we were just even outlining the show and when I had sort of musical ideas I would sketch things and on the very first page is this you know but particularly that that um, vamp or motif or whatever you want to call it so I kind of had her um, her defiance and her desperation and her woundedness and her desire. Um, Glinda, I didn't get Glinda right away. Um, and the, she was a character that grew in importance because she's not as important a character in the novel as she is in the show. But Winnie Holtzman, my collaborator, got w Glinda immediately. And so basically the thing for Glinda, the first song that I wrote for Glinda was popular. Hmm. Um because I just thought she was like, you know, the cheerleaders in my high school that everybody lusted after, you know, the, the, the beautiful blonde cheerleader who went out with the captain of the football team, you know, and I got that sort of, you know, which is sort of, which is sort of bubblegummy in its sound. I didn't want it to sound too much like America or our time, you know, I wanted it to sound otherworldly, but... Still, you know, that sort of, you know, whatever it is, you know, popular, you're gonna be popular, singing in the wrong key, singing in the girl's key. But, um, yeah, that feeling for Glinda was the, the first thing emerged. And then the fact that she would sing in soprano in some places only happened because we cast Kristen Chenoweth hmm. and Kristen wanted a chance to use her soprano. And at first I didn't think of the character that way, but then I realized that as in the movie, when the character of Glinda sings, you know, in this high kind of warbly soprano, that the public face of Glinda could be soprano. So mm. that's how that happened. As I'm rushing through your career, I want to ask kind of in aggregate about your scores um, for the animated films. It's often been said that um, many of the animated films would 
Disney and also DreamWorks that you've worked with that it's like writing musicals. Is it like writing a musical for the stage or is it a different process? Um, it's a lot like writing a musical for the stage um, because it's all about story structure. You're still using songs to further the story, um, illuminate character. There are fewer songs, so they serve more as tent poles to hold up the story Less, more is that rather than motors that drive through the story. But, you know, and then, of course, in a movie, you have to be conscious of the fact that things, there's a reason they're called motion pictures. You have to be able to envision the character in action, um, in visual action. You know, I made this joke once about if you're going to write a ballad for a character in animation, she better be going over a waterfall in a canoe. But there's something true about that, whereas in the theater, you know, you plunk the lead down in the middle of the stage and hit him or her with three spotlights and they sing for five minutes and that's the best thing in the show. You, you can't get away with that in the, in the movies. Sands on a Wet Afternoon was your first opera, and I'm wondering why you chose to write an opera after all of the success in musical theater and what makes it so different from musical theater that you would call it something else? Well, I call it something else because it is something else. You know, it's it's an opera in that it is written for legit voices who sing unamplified. It's sung through. It is played by a full symphony orchestra. And the style of music is somewhat different, though I hope it's still melodically accessible. I've always just been an opera fan <laughs> since I was in college. I really got to like opera then and got a lot of opera albums and listened to them. And um, and so I always had in mind that someday I might try to write one. In fact, at Carnegie Mellon, the fourth of the shows that I did for Scotch and Soda, I um, – I wrote one act and another friend wrote the other act and the act I wrote was a one-act opera, a very bad one-act opera, but nevertheless. And then, you know, a few years ago, out of the blue, I got offered an opera commission, a commission to write an opera for a company in Santa Barbara. And I thought, well, if not now, when? So I sort of jumped off that cliff. Is there a musical theme just to give the flavor of what that would be? Oh, gosh, there are... There are a lot of musical themes, but I think the big theme, which is sung by the medium, the leading character, and her son, who's a ghost, which when it first appears is called It's Always Been True, goes like this. Like that. So it's very, you know, very um, lush and, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I have to bring this to an end. I'm I sorry. I know I'm a, quite the talker. And let, <laughs> oh, the talking, the playing, I would happily sit for hours. But as I said at the beginning, for the man who introduced me to the Broadway musical, though he didn't know it, Stephen Schwartz, thank you so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you. Center. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Howard. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is John Kilgore. Post-production is by Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. This Downstage Center was recorded at Kilgore Sound Studios in New York. And post-production, done at the CUNY Radio Studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from AmericanTheaterWing.org. 
You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.